0: Thank you, Abe. Join me in that passage, if you would, Titus chapter 2, and we'll pick up our study of it in verses 11 through 14 tonight. I'm thankful that for this text, and we finally arrived at what I've called all along through this study in chapter 2 the doctrinal foundation for all that we have heard so far. I'm looking forward to opening this text up for us. The focus in the last few sermons, as you remember, has been on the content of chapter 2 in verses 2 to 10, and we've looked at how everyone in the church on Crete has been exhorted toward godly living. We've noted Paul's concern that Titus teach not just sound doctrine, but what accords with sound doctrine, what flows out of a knowledge and application of the sound doctrine that that church was beginning to embrace as it grew in the Lord Jesus Christ. The point that we've heard time and time again as we've opened up chapter 2 is that if people on Crete claim to believe the gospel, their lives should look markedly different from their unsaved friends and family members. We've seen people of every age and arena of life, whether in the church, in the home, or in the workplace, addressed from this text in chapter 2 to ensure that they knew from the pulpit and from house to house, as Titus would go about his ministry, that their lives needed to look different because of the grace of God that was revealed in Jesus Christ to them. And we've seen as part of Paul's overarching concern for the church to be a witness in the world that... The instruction needed to emphasize that no charge could be brought against them, against the word of God, the son of God, or the people of God. There needed to be a consistency in the church such that the world could look inside the church and see something different from that which was outside on account of how God's grace has touched each heart of every person. We've been very, very aware as we have gone through this letter so far that some ungodly men had taken teaching roles in that church and were influencing people away from Jesus Christ and the holy living that he was calling his people to. Even those who were known by the end of chapter 1 as those who profess to know God but deny him by their works. It is in the midst of all of this false teaching and all of this legalism and lawlessness that Titus wants, or Paul wants to make sure Titus is teaching what accords with sound doctrine. The church needs to look different, does it not? That is what we've been learning so far. And as I've said, what we'll see tonight is the underlying doctrinal foundation of everything that Paul has communicated in chapter 2 thus far. Christian men and women of all ages in the church are to live in a particular way. And it's boiled down to this. We could say it quite simply, that God's grace is to make a visible difference in the life of God's people. You and I need to be convinced as we leave here from the study of this text tonight, that God's grace makes a difference such that we would demonstrate Christ-like character in every arena of life, at every age, wherever we would go, inside and outside the church, as we seek to understand and apply the gospel, not just understand it as head knowledge that passes a Sunday school exam, but woven into our lives as an applied set of beliefs such that people would see the impact of the gospel in our lives, See that God's grace has been manifest among us, to see that God's grace makes a difference to us. And I'm going to suggest from our text tonight that because that grace makes a difference, our lives as members of one another at Emmanuel Baptist Church should be demonstrating change, ongoing change, as a result of Christ centered, hope filled, future oriented, grace empowered growth in godliness. That's a lot there. We're going to unpack that as we go. But I want us to be convinced that there ought to be Christ-centered, hope-filled, future-oriented, grace-empowered growth in godliness in every one of our lives here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Let's leave here embracing that tonight. I also want to see from this text how encouraging it is for those of us engaging daily in the battle against sin. It's hard, isn't it? We meet trials of various kinds, there's temptations in this way, and that way we'll be impressed inside and outside in every which way. This text is incredibly encouraging tonight as it holds out what God's grace is doing in our midst, and we're presented with the reality that change in your life, change in my life can occur on account of that grace. Grace. It is possible to live in such a way as we've been seen out, as we've been exhorted to in chapter 2, because God's grace makes a difference. Perhaps you're struggling yourself tonight with a particular sin struggle, a particular area of life that you would love to see more progress, but you're in a rut and you're discouraged. Perhaps you're walking alongside someone that meets that description. Perhaps you're walking together, exhorting one another To embrace this grace which is at work, I want you to be encouraged and even equipped to persevere with one another tonight as we open up this text and see the hope that is in there, the hope that really compels us to live lives that are increasingly marked by, as I said, Christ-centered, hope-filled, future-oriented Grace-empowered growth in godliness. And again, I want to drive this point home. It's all because God's grace makes a difference. Our text for tonight is verses 11 to 14. Let me just read that so that it's familiar to us. The text says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The first word in our text, right there at the beginning of verse number 11, is so small you could almost breeze by it, but it's so important, that word for, f o r. It's what connects the passage that we're looking at tonight to everything that we've studied over the past few months. Verse 1 of this chapter clearly instructed Titus to be teaching certain things, as we said, not just the doctrine that should change us, but the lifestyle that accords with that sound doctrine. Then we looked at verses 2 to 10, which opened up exactly what older men should be striving toward. Older women should be striving toward as they coached or mentored the younger women. And we see also the life impact that younger men should see as a result of the gospel intersecting with their lives. Let us not forget what we have studied in verses 2 through 10. Let's refresh ourselves regularly in what should mark our character even as we proceed into the reason, we should see that in our character. And that's what we're looking at tonight that reason, that doctrinal foundation, verses 11 to 14. That which we'll look at tonight is the reason for the holy living that we've been called to in verses 2 through 10. It makes a difference. The gospel makes a difference to all those claiming to know God, seeking to grow into the image of his son and to put that Christ-likeness on display. That word for then connects the call of a life to holiness that we saw before to the reasons for it that we'll study tonight. The grace of God is the phrase that appears next and we often use theological phrases like that often without thinking of the implications and the meaning of them phrases. The grace of God is something that's on our lips pretty frequently. You know, by the grace of God, I'll be such and such. By the grace of God, I'll be in such and such a place at such and such a time. It's good that we sit in this text tonight and think about what we mean, what Paul means by the grace of God as he writes this in verse number 11. The grace of God in general is his voluntary favor toward us, isn't it? It's that undeserved goodwill toward us, something that he's not obligated to show because he is holy, set apart, absolutely worthy of worship, and we are not. We're completely deserving of judgment. Nevertheless, he bestows his goodwill, his grace upon us, even as we're told in this text. Sometimes we refer to his common grace, don't we? You may remember the Lord's words in Matthew chapter 5 as he's teaching on God's love to those Wicked and righteous persons alike. In Matthew 5:45, the common grace of God is revealed in a statement that Jesus said, He, God the Father, makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends His reign on the just and on the unjust. That's common grace. That's grace that's common to all. Completely undeserving, but receiving it nevertheless. Psalm 145, verse 9. Says that the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. That is another statement of God's common grace. But that common grace is distinct from the saving grace that Paul is talking about in our text tonight. Paul here refers to in verse 11 the saving grace of God, which God chooses to freely bestow upon those whom he has chosen to do so. He sets his sovereign, gracious, loving choice to love a certain group of people and thus displays his saving grace. Under that label of saving grace, we often hear terms of forgiveness. These are gifts that God gives like justification, reconciliation, adoption, sanctification, how he works progressively in us by his spirit to make us more look like his son. All these things under the umbrella of saving grace. I don't think we can ever talk too much about God's common grace, but especially his saving grace. Think of it with me for a minute. Forgiving grace under that umbrella is what a sinner receives when he repents of his sins, places childlike faith in Jesus Christ, to be cleansed of all of his sins, to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ has paid the full weight, the full debt of his sins against a holy God. Knowing that every sin's penalty has been paid in full. That same believer, the one who has experienced God's saving grace, the one who has been given that faith to believe is justified. Justified. Declared righteous before God, no longer clothed in his own wretched sinfulness, but clothed instead in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, able to stand full and free before God and receive the grace he needs to change. And isn't it true that that forgiven, justified believer is also reconciled to God? All enmity between the sinner and God removed, the two brought together, That believer adopted into his family, becoming a legal heir of all that he owns. In the knowledge that God is now working powerfully in him by his saving grace, his sanctifying grace, to make him look more like his son. Again, can we ever talk too much about that grace? We do well to think on these things. See in verse 11 with me that this saving grace is said to have done something. Verse 11 says that God's grace has done something. There's a past tense aspect of this grace. What has God's grace done? The text says, the grace of God has appeared. In what or whom has that grace appeared? I think we know the answer if we've been in this church for long enough. The saving grace of God has appeared or has been revealed through And in Jesus Christ himself, John tells us that he is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What a wonder that God has revealed his grace to us in such a way, even at such a cost to himself. Giving his only son, the eternal flesh, or sorry, the eternal God, becoming enfleshed in a human body that he might enter space and time to deal with our sin issues. Giving up that worship that he enjoyed. Surrounded by angels, having perfect fellowship with the Father within the Trinity, alongside the Spirit. But the grace of God has appeared in Jesus Christ in space and time, bringing salvation for all people. Paul is not here teaching in verse 11 in that phrase, bringing salvation for all people, that every sinner will always be saved. That would be what we call universalism. The affirmation that every sinner everywhere at all times is heresy. It's universalism. That is not what is meant by this term. Over in chapter 1, verse number 1, Paul has already referred to God's elect. So Paul can must not be misconstrued here as being a universalist. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it's very clear that God has chosen to save a people on whom he has set his electing love. He is saying through this text that sinners of every stripe, sinners of every kind can be saved from the penalty of sin by the grace of God Revealed in Jesus Christ. God's saving grace in Christ was revealed for people of all ages and every arena of life. And that would have been good news for those in Crete, wouldn't it? In a culture so marked by that moniker, always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Would there be any hope of salvation for such people? You better believe it because God's grace has appeared in Jesus Christ, bringing salvation for all kinds of people. Even those people are able to be saved because God's grace has been manifested to them, and it makes a difference. Sinners of all kinds can be saved because of Jesus Christ. They'll also be sanctified, as we see in Acts in verse number 12. Look with me at verse number 12. and Notice that grace is also said to be doing something. What is it doing? Here's a present aspect of God's grace at work among God's people. Not only does God's grace grace save from the penalty of sin, but also the power of it. According to our text in verse 12, the grace of God is training us. Now training has a purpose, doesn't it? It teaches and disciplines towards some end goal. It was at work in the lives of those in the Cretan church that first received this letter via Titus. And it's certainly at work in our midst this evening. But it's trying to achieve something. What is it trying to achieve? What is it doing as it trains us? Verse number 12 says it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To renounce something is to deny it, to say no to it, to have an absolute refusal to follow, obey, or recognize its influence any further in our life. It is a strong, intentional word. For the believer to renounce ungodliness, as it is displayed in this text tonight, is for the believer to outrightly reject the kind of thing that corresponds to any rejection of God's righteous standard for living. If ungodliness rejects God's standard for living, then to renounce ungodliness is to reject anything in that category. That requires saying no to and turning away from such things as we might encounter in the day to day sexual activity outside of marriage, foul language. This time of year, maybe cheating on your taxes. Cooking the books, as we say. It involves renouncing, saying no to, turning away from anger, lustful things, drunkenness, and things like these. To renounce worldly passions, as we're told in the text, is again to say no to, to deny, to refuse to follow, obey any lust or longing in the heart that is worldly instead of godly. In nature, these are the ungodly desires of the heart and the self centered motives that fuel the ungodliness that we just listed. It's the inner workings of our heart that drive us to do the things that we're to do or not to do. These are passions that would have been at work in the hearts of those on Crete. We already saw, as we previously studied, the things that were present in some of the older women on Crete. They were at the root of the slanderous tongue and the enslavement to much wine. The worldly passions propelled people in those directions. They were at the root of the young mother's lack of love toward their husbands and children and they are at the root of the argumentative slaves who were being exhorted later on in chapter 2. Renouncing the Outward ungodliness and the inner worldly passions that drove them was absolutely necessary for those on Crete as it's necessary for us today in response to what God's grace is doing as it trains us away from pursuing those things. As we're learning what displeases the Lord, as we're growing in the grace of knowledge, as we're taught what the scripture says about what pleases God and what doesn't, how intentional are we at saying no when that image comes on the screen that we ought not to look at? Because that's an intentional step we can take, isn't it? As we're putting sin to death, as we're being trained by the scriptures, by God's grace, how intentional are we being to say no and turning away from those things? If those things are feeding the passions of our flesh that lead us to do the things we ought not to do are we saying no to do those things are we being careful to catch ourselves when we're tempted toward anger to say no to what we want to price so highly above loving the lord jesus christ in that moment when tempted to be bitter again and again are we fighting a good fight with that affirmation no i must not go down that path are we renouncing ungodliness, and worldly passions. I want you to note with me how hopeful verse 12 is as it reveals that it is God's grace that is training us. But it's training us not only to put off the things that we're to put off, but also to put on the things that please the Lord and help us make progress in our relationship with Him. We're to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age as the grace of God trains us to that end. And again, the Lord is powerfully at work by His grace to tell us, to teach us, to train us, to put off ungodliness, replacing those things with things that please the Lord. Three things are listed in verse number 12. Self-control is one of them. This is that Christ-like character quality that comes up over and over and over and over again in this letter. Something obviously lacking in those on Crete. That's why they've been exhorted to put this on. But if God's people would stand out, they would live sensibly and moderately and thoughtfully with a soundness in mind. I love the definition that we shared the last time we talked about self-control, and it was this. It was to be intent on the what, the how, and the when of doing what should be done. So thinking what God would have us to do, how he would have us to do it at the time that we should do so, Choosing to put off other things that are less important or even sinful, such that we would be marked increasingly by self control. Uprightness is another thing. This character quality speaks of outward conduct toward one's neighbor. It's honesty, it's justice, it's integrity in dealing with others in an upright, godly kind of way. Finally, godly living. Here we see the relationship dynamic between the saved person and God himself. There is a growth in godliness, a longing to please God, a desire, increasing desire, to live a life marked by reverence and respect for God Most High. William Hendrickson notes, he's a commentator that put some helpful comments as he studied this passage. He notes that God's grace is transforming a Christian in relation to himself, to his neighbor, and to his God. That threefold, wonderful transformation that God's grace is training us toward. Because as we've said, as I'll continue to say, God's grace makes a difference. We need to be seeing progress in relation to our own godliness, our own desires, but also the way we interact with our neighbors and God himself. God's grace would look powerful. Sorry, it would look powerless, would it not? if those who profess to have experienced it showed absolutely no measure of change in their lives while telling everyone that they'd come to know Jesus Christ. Now, with the idea that God's grace is training us, I think it's helpful to ask, how does that work? What are the mechanics of that? What ought we to be participating in if God intends to train us by his grace in a particular way? We should be very, very relieved that it is his grace alongside his wisdom and his power that are working in us. It's not our own strength. It's not our own wisdom that we are transformed by. We remember promises like Philippians 1.6 where the good work that he began in us will be brought to completion by him at the day of Jesus Christ. He works and who can turn that good work back? We take a great deal of comfort that it is God's grace that trains us. But how does he do that? Here's my suggested biblical answer as I've considered various different New Testament passages. The grace of God trains us by the work of his spirit through the ministry of his word in the hands of his people. Let me say that again. The grace of God trains us by the work of his spirit through the ministry of his word in the hands of his people. We learn from Scripture that transformation comes by the work of the Spirit. It's very clear in passages like 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. There Paul says that we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Spirit works to make this change happen. And of course, it should be no surprise to us that the grace of God trains us through the ministry of God's word because all scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, is breathed out by God. It's as if it's the very word of God itself and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And here's an important word, for training in righteousness. That is what the word of God is sufficient for. The Lord is perfect in His work to open up His word to us and convict us when our outward manner of living and the inward desires that propel us in the wrong direction are shown to be out of His will. As we read in Hebrews 4, verses 12 to 13, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He opens us up, he lays us bare, his word reveals the, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And he's always changed at the heart level, isn't he? He's always concerned about that being the place of change, not just outward conformity to a new set of behaviors, but change at the heart level. That's what causes a person to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions that drive them. That's what changes us. That's what we need to be changed at the level of as the Spirit works through His Word to convict us and train us in the way that we should go. Even as we've been learning in Wednesday nights in our Instruments of the Redeemer's Hands curriculum, God has called His people to be involved in this training, has He not? We can't renounce the things that we're called to renounce as Scripture has opened up to us unless we are aware of those things that we may be blind to. As we spend time with people, as they are acting as seeing eye dogs, as it were, to us, they come alongside and they say, "Brother, sister, we've got to talk about how you're treating your wife, how you're, you're parenting your children, because you're not exhibiting godly conduct." The Spirit works through the ministry of His Word in the hands of His people. We're to be conduits of His grace. One example of this in Hebrews thirteen, uh, sorry, three thirteen reminds us that we need to be dependent on one another as God's people, as we are being trained toward godliness through the ministry of the word in the hands of God's people. The author of Hebrew says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do we see the importance of interdependency on one another as the word of God is opened up to us? As God's grace trains us through the ministry of the word that we would not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Colossians 3.16 says much the same. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So the word of Christ as the spirit works in our midst training us through teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Romans 15 14, Paul says, I am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Please understand that God's grace trains us in part, as a necessary part, through the ministry that we have to one another. Hopefully, you get the point. The grace of God is training us for godly living in the present age. Change takes place in the here and now as God's grace trains us by his spirit through the ministry of his word at the hands of his people. Now, I'd like to ask us, can you and I expect to grow as Christians if we are not asking the Lord to change us by his spirit, if we're not dependent on his grace? Can we expect to change if we are not studying and applying his word with regularity Can we expect to change if we're refusing to let others speak the truth of scripture into our life with the goal that we would all be conformed to Christ's image through that ministry in one another's lives? I think the answer is no. God's grace is using those things as his means to train us. If we're not being confronted with our ungodliness and our worldly passions through the study of God's word, then we can't hope to change. Can we expect to bring glory to the Lord if we're not being changed? The answer is no. So we need to participate in God's work of change as he trains us by his grace using the means that he has chosen to change us in. We are required to be doing these things. We are expected to grow in grace. We are expected to participate in that process of change. Because God's grace is training us in the here and now toward godly living. And these are attitudes and actions that should be marking our lives. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now, I mentioned earlier that because God's grace makes a difference, Because it's at work to do something. Our lives as members here at Emmanuel Baptist Church should be demonstrating Christ-centered, hope-filled, future-oriented, grace-empowered growth in godliness. We've seen something of the Christ-centeredness as we've recognized that the grace of God has appeared. Jesus has shown up on the scene, as it were. He has made salvation possible for us. The hope that we have has in part been in view because we recognize that it is God's powerful grace that is work, at work among us. God is the one effecting the change. And we can be assured that what he has called us to, he will make possible by his grace. But what about the future-oriented aspect of our grace and power growth? That's what I want us to see next. And I want to see it from verse number 13. According to this verse... The grace of God is also training us to wait for the coming of the Lord, something yet future. We recognize that he's come once. We believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's coming again. Not only is God's grace at work in us, training us to put off ungodliness and to replace ungodliness with godliness in the present age, but as we live out our godly lives, we do so waiting for our blessed hope The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what verse 13 says. And this market is not a passive waiting. This is not a sitting around waiting for him to come because he'll do something to us when he gets there. He will. We can be assured of that. But it's a putting on and a putting off as God's grace trains us waiting for the appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a striving, waiting for him to be here. Paul refers to Christ appearing as not just our hope. It it is that. It's that confident conviction, that sure belief that he is coming again, but he doesn't say that it's just our hope. It is our blessed hope. It will be a joyous, happy thing when he comes, will it not? Until he comes, we're being trained to wait patiently for him. I wondered as I studied this, why he would make reference, why Paul would make reference to that future coming of Jesus Christ. Why, when he is talking about godly living from verses 2 to 10, would he ever be concerned about embracing the gospel and this future-oriented aspect of what Jesus Christ will do? becomes clear as we recognize how the scripture connects the coming of Christ and Christian living. I made the suggestion last time as we looked at the instruction that Paul gave through Titus to slaves that Christ's imminent return would have been such a hopeful reality to those who were suffering under the injustice of masters who were withholding pay or really abusing their slaves. And it is a comfort to know, isn't it? That there's coming a day when every injustice will be set straight. That's certainly going to occur when Jesus comes and gathers us to himself. But I would also suggest tonight that the imminent return of the Lord should motivate us toward godly living, not just... To hope in the end of grief and suffering. The New Testament seems to be very clear on this. If you looked at 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 to 29, you'd see John's words, and now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him at his coming. So if we as Christ's people are walking in darkness when he comes will have no confidence before him, will instead shrink back in shame. We make the connection that the coming of Christ ought to motivate us to godly living in the present. Over in 1 John 3, verses 2 to 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. That is a wonderful hope, but what do we do in the present? Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Again, there is a present motivation toward godly living with a future-oriented perspective to our salvation. If we would meet him with confidence when he comes in the future, we will be purifying ourselves as he is pure. What a difference that would make to what we look at on the internet when the doors closed. Because if we knew that Jesus was coming back at that next mouse click, we wouldn't click that mouse. What a difference it would make if we consider our wives and the relationship we have with them, our husbands, the relationship we have with them, our children, and how our harshness, how our selfishness would be transformed if we imagined that Christ could come back at any time and ask us to give an account for how we just reacted How we would be active in the body of Christ, knowing that we need to be found living for him, busy about the Lord's business when he comes. That can all be very convicting, can it? But it certainly motivates us to godly living in the present age. That's an aspect of God's grace, which is future oriented, something yet to come that transforms us in the present. The return of Christ is a hopeful reality to dwell on, isn't it? We long for his return. It's hopeful enough to recognize that God's grace has appeared and we have been saved from the penalty of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because of that salvation, that salvation from his wrath. We've heard tonight that God's grace is so powerfully at work to train us for godly living in the present that there is hope for change. That is also hopeful. So there's the past and the present hopeful aspects of God's grace. But let us be further encouraged in the future-oriented aspect of this grace that's been revealed to us in this text tonight, that the Lord is coming again, and we will be fully removed from the presence of sin forevermore when he comes. Fully glorified, sharing in the same glorified state that he currently shares. All suffering will be brought to an end. Not one of us will sin again when he appears as a second time in all of his glory as our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let that day, let his coming, motivate you and I toward godly living, knowing that the battle against the flesh and the spirit will soon be done. We'll see him as he is. Hopefully it's a little more clear now as we've gone through this text about how our lives should be formed and transformed by how God's grace is training us and how we should be demonstrating this Christ-centered, hope-filled, future-oriented, grace-empowered growth in godliness. Now let us think, as we bring this all to a close, on the Christ-centered nature of our growth. We've already talked somewhat about it. Note how Paul moves from verses 12 to 13, talking about what God's grace is doing in the present, how we are being trained by his grace, And he moves to what Christ has done in verse 14. Again, this is going to establish some very important realities for us that we ought to walk in light of if we would be demonstrating the effective working of his grace in our lives. In verse 14, he refers to Christ as the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Here's yet more insight into how the Christian life should be Christ-centered. See in verse 14 with me that he, our great God and Savior, gave himself for us. He's redeemed us from all lawlessness. That is, he offered himself on the cross as the perfect payment that our sin deserved to purchase us with his own life from our helpless and even happy slavery to sin. We were so happy in sin, we didn't know how bad we had it. And he died on the cross to set us free from that horrid bondage. More than that, he gave his own life to purify for himself a people for his own possession, a people who would repent and believe according to the grace that he had fixed to show to us. But we're now his own possession who are zealous for good works. Set free... From sin slavery and washed clean from the filth of sin as we have been, we are now set apart to serve Him. Mark this Jesus owns His people. If you and I are in Christ tonight, then we don't live for ourselves, but for Him who died and was raised to save us. You and I belong to Him. We now work for Him. We do what He says, and that, according to our text, With zeal. Who sets our agenda according to this verse? Who gets to set your life trajectory, my life trajectory, according to this verse? It's Jesus. Christ Does Everything that we do is marked by what his will for our lives would be. In verse 14, we also see Jesus' death should lead us to a walking in the light, not in lawlessness. He set us free from that. There should be a purity about us in keeping with our cleansing as we are trained, as we've said, to put off those ungodly behaviors and the worldly passions that drive them. If we now belong to Jesus, we ought to be working zealously to bring him glory. If you're a Christian here tonight along with me, the same is true for you. You and I need to be walking testimonies of the reality that God's saving grace really does make a difference. This has been such a rich text. It comes on the heels of some real, real confrontational passages, doesn't it? We've been challenged as we've gone through chapter 2. That is good. That is in part how God trains us by his grace. It is good for us to be disciplined by God's word. As we've looked at chapter 2 together, we've received a lot of important instruction in what our lives should be marked by if we're to demonstrate that God's grace is truly at work in our lives. And what we've seen tonight, as I've said, is the, the engine that drives all of that holy living. That word for that we looked at at the beginning connects the call to a life of holiness To the doctrine that makes it necessary, but not only necessary, but possible. We recognize how hopeful this is because God's grace compels us toward holy living. It necessitates that we demonstrate how holy he is in response to the grace that he's shown us. But it also reminds us that it is possible to change. The Lord saves, he also sanctifies He's training his people to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and holy lives in the present age, in the here and now, in our homes, in the car rides home, as we await patiently for his return. Let's be encouraged tonight as we recognize that, yes, holy living is necessary, but holy living is possible because God's grace is making it happen among us let's pray that god would show this even more in our midst our heavenly father we're so thankful that we could open up this hopeful text tonight it's a challenging text there's a lot to take in there's more text to take in lord more to think on than time would allow but we're so thankful to be confronted with the realities that really drive our call to holiness We want to put your glory on display and we recognize that that comes from an embrace of the gospel, an active working out of the truths that we've studied tonight about what Jesus has done. He has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Lord, so many people from so many different backgrounds have been saved by his grace. We're thankful for your grace in that regard. We recognize that we're saved. We're also sanctified as your grace continues to train us. We're so thankful, Lord, that Your grace is training us as we gather together, as we study your word, as we're exhorted by one another to put off the things that you've called us to put off and to put on the things that you've called us to put on. Help us with that, Lord. We recognize afresh from this text tonight that we have been redeemed from all lawlessness, that you are expecting us to live as those who have been set free from the power of sin. Lord, we want to live pure lives as those who have been Purified as a possession owned by your Son, Jesus Christ. We want to be working zealously for Him. Help us so much with that. Help us to regard what He wants for our lives, not what we want. Make our will aligned with your will as we study your word and exhort one another. We're so thankful for the work that you have done in our midst. Would you please continue that good work? Bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Cause us to wait patiently for the return of your Son as we anticipate how we'll be transformed fully into his image. Let that hope motivate us, Lord, toward holy living. We long for his coming. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. We pray in his name. Amen. Abe, come lead us in song, please.